The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I believe this text is getting right at the heart of what we need, not only in our day, but in 1 Peter, if he is going to bring two commands to us, I think they're here in this passage. I can't imagine a text more relevant for what we are facing. I can't imagine a text that gets at the heart more of the Christian life and what we face and what we do when we're in the pressure cooker than this text. So I want to read it. I want to state what I think the outline and main point is, and then I want to pray and jump into it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. Last week when I was here with my family sitting and being able to just be involved in corporate worship, it was so worshipful for me to see everybody in this moment, to just look around and see people with open Bibles or open phones, hopefully with the Bible on it. (laughs) Let's listen to God's holy word. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So you can see in these two sets of verses, verses 5 through 8, sorry, verses 5 through 7, And the second set of verses, verses 8 through 9, you have in essence two commands. You have the command to be humble, and you have the command to be watchful. And the question is, how do those two commands relate? What does it mean in the first set of verses, be humble, and in the second set of verses, be watchful? How do they actually cohere as a unified message to that church and to this church? I think the answer is this. What these two sets of verses do is they help us to, number one, embrace God's purpose in our suffering, and number two, resist Satan's purpose in our suffering. The first set of verses say, this is how you should respond in the pressure cooker, in crisis, in persecution, in suffering. Here's what God is up to, your humility. Be humble. Embrace that. That's what God's doing. 
and what's Satan doing with all kinds of sufferings throughout the world to your brotherhood? What's he up to? Resist what he's up to in suffering. We'll see what that means in a moment. Let's pray. Father, I ask, oh God, I ask that you would speak now to your church. Hallelujah that we are not alone. That we are not left to fend for ourselves. That you have not left us as orphans. That you have not left us neglected with no words for us. Oh, you have words for us this morning. Full of grace and truth. God, help us to receive it, all of it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice how Peter begins with a call for humility. And in this call, he starts with people who are going to be receiving the leadership of the elders. You know that's what he's doing in this verse. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, because two things bring you back to verse 1 of chapter 5. The word likewise, which goes back to verse 1, I exhort the elders, in other words, I exhort the elders to lead as God would have you. And now he says, likewise, I would have the church be subject to them as God would have you. So it's a dual command. Here's the elders, likewise those who receive. The other clue is that the word elders is the same as verses 1 through 4. So he's talking now to the church. He's told, told the elders you're supposed to lead in a way, not domineering over those in your charge. You're to lead in a certain way as God would have you willingly. And now he's saying to the rest of the church, you should be subject to that leadership. Just like God is calling them to lead in a certain way, he's calling you to be subject in a certain way. And the question is, why does it seem like he's saying, he's calling out the younger? Why don't you say non-elders should be subject to elders? Remember what the word be subject means Peter's used this now several times. It means to willingly, respectfully put yourself under the authority of someone else. Here, he's saying to the church, put yourself under the authority willingly. They're supposed to be leading willingly. You're supposed to be willingly submitting, receiving that authority. But why does he call out those who are younger. Now, some people say it could be that at this early stage in church history, if you're going with those who are going to be the leaders or the elders, there's going to be those who are, have a seniority of faith, and maybe that seniority of faith at this early age does correspond to physical age. Remember, Paul did say you're not supposed to appoint anybody as an elder who's a recent convert, or they might be puffed up with pride and fall into the same snare of the devil. It could be that those who are actually the elders of the church are not only physically older, but older in faith, and that's why. But my hunch 
is that he targets those who are younger strategically because he's highlighting those that might have the hardest time submitting, being subject, those who might not be so readily ready to receive leadership. I think one commentator is hitting the nail on the head with what's happening here in the situation of First Peter. Remember, this is persecution. This is like living in a pressure cooker when, when tensions are high. What could happen? Quote, leaders could act with arrogance and become self-serving, self-protecting, domineering. But church members could also respond by holding the authority of others in contempt, being self-protective, disagreeing with how they're leading. And arrogance in any form, whether from church leaders or church members, is something that God fiercely and directly opposes. So what Peter's trying to do with both leaders and followers is eliminate arrogance that would say to the leaders, we're better, or the followers, no, we know better. We're not going to follow you. He's trying to eliminate arrogance. Why? Why does he so zero in on arrogance? Look at 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The pride that it takes for a follower to say to a leader, not following you because I know better. Or the pride and arrogance that it takes as a leader to say, because I know better, I am better. God hates both of those. And what pride does is it takes teammates and it creates opposition. Remember, this is exactly what Jesus was saying to these disciples. Remember last week when Pastor Kenny pointed out not being domineering, that's coming from Jesus' words in Mark 10, where Jesus says that those who are considered great of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, domineering. It's not to be that way with you. Why did he have to say that? Why did he have to say greatness is not about making other people your servants, but being servants for others. Because they were arguing with one another who was the greatest. What pride does on the horizontal level is it takes teammates and makes them opponents. And Peter's saying, if you're going to get through this, you've got to see you're on the same team. And the arrogance that creates opponents out of teammates, God hates. So clothe yourselves with humility. And he says more. The, the arrogance at the horizontal level is directly vertical. In other words, just like John says in 1 John, somebody can't say, I love God, hate your brother. That person is a liar. In the same way, you can't say, I'm humble towards God and feel better than your brother. 
That person's a liar. God hates that. Here's what pride is. If you want a definition, as Peter quotes here from Proverbs in verse 5, here's the definition. Look, God opposes the proud. My definition of pride from that verse is pride is a disposition of opposition to God. That's what makes it so heinous. It is a disposition of opposition to God. Why is it that pride isn't just one sin among many? Why is it that it heads the list of so many, like, seven deadly sins as, as the most abominable before God? Answer, all other sins may lead you further from God. Pride is the one sin that would try to put you above God. It is directly contending for the supremacy that he alone deserves. That's what makes it so heinous. It's directly putting you in opposition to God, not only to one another, making teammates opponents. It makes you an opponent of God. Could there be anything worse than having an almighty opponent? Here Peter is zeroing in and saying you should hate pride as much as God does. You should see what your pride is doing, not only horizontally, but vertically. It is opposition to God. Let's take another look at what pride does. Pride is incredibly hard to spot and to kill because it's a shapeshifter. It, it looks different. Sometimes it looks self-exalting. Sometimes it looks self-abasing. And you think, well, that looks like pride and that doesn't. No, no. The, the problem is pride is preoccupation with ourselves. The problem isn't that we have high thoughts of ourselves or low thoughts of ourselves. It's that we have lots of thoughts about ourselves. And we think that's reality. I should think about myself all the time. And it's a lie. It, it's, it's a lie. So pride not only is like a sin, but it's a sinful mother that gives birth to other sins. Like sometimes you lie because you are too proud to tell people that you made a mistake. But pride doesn't just tell lies, it is a lie. It is a lie that the world revolves around you. It is a lie that you should be so consumed with yourself. This is something that I fight all the time. Let me just let you into my head a little bit. It's a scary place. So one day, uh, I, was, I was driving home from church. We just had this meeting. And I started thinking to myself, boy, 
that was a big meeting. And I think, I think maybe the, the turning point in that meeting is when I asked that question. I can't believe people hadn't thought to ask that before. And then the whole discussion took a different turn. And then I, th- I caught myself like, whoa. It sounds like I'm taking credit for the success of that meeting. What a prideful thought. This, I'm taking you down, killing that. And then three seconds later, wow. Thankful I was aware of that prideful thought. <laughs> I wonder if other people are as aware of their pride as I'm aware of my pride. And that's, whoa! I'm like taking pride in awareness of pride. You just want to cut your head off at that moment, like sinful body who will rescue me from this body of death. We just get into this preoccupation with ourselves. And you don't fight pride with awareness of pride because it creates more pride. How do you fight this then? If it's not being fixated on how you're doing. Peter tells us how. What is humility in this verse? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if pride is a disposition of opposition to God, humility is a disposition of reception from God, receiving grace from God. It puts you into the position of reality that says, I need grace. I know who I am. I know what is this life is all about. It's me needing God. It's me needing grace. This is reality when I'm in this posture of a disposition that needs reception of grace. He's saying humility is the position of readiness to receive grace. That sees I need it. I recognize my need. I'm not contending with you for anything. I'm asking you for everything. I see my need. It is a disposition of reception, receiving grace. But how? That's the concept. Humility is a disposition of reception from God. How do you do that? I love the fact the Bible doesn't just tell you what to do, but it tells you how to do it. That's what he's doing now in verses 6 through 7. He's telling you how. So notice verse 6. He begins again with what humility is. Here's the command, verse 6. That is because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Because of that, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So Peter starts by saying, here's how you humble yourselves. It's under, not over, under the mighty hand of God. And it's God will lift you up, not you lift yourself up. And it's in his time not your time. This is all about God. You see, he's got the mighty hand. I'm not going to be over him so that God has a day in which he's going to take the proud and the lofty and tear them down. I don't want to be under the mighty hand that way. 
crushed. So I'm going to put myself under the mighty hand the other way where he lifts up, not crushes down. Under the mighty hand of God that he'll lift you up, not you raise yourself up, looking at everything you're facing and saying, I've got to lift myself out of this. God's going to lift me up, not in my time, but in his time. It's all about trust. I recognize my need. I see and trust you. You will lift me up. How do you do it now? Look at verse 7. Here's how. By casting all your anxieties on him. The NIV is so misleading here. NIV translates, humble yourselves and cast all your cares on him. Makes it sound like there's two separate things, two different things, green eggs and ham, two separate. No, no, no. This is how you are humble. You humble yourselves by casting your anxieties on him. What is pride? Pride is carrying your cares. Humility would be casting them. Have you ever seen this where it just looks like somebody has their hands full and they're like walking around like this and you're like, hey, can I give you a hand? I got it. I got it. No, I got it. What a fool to walk through this life that way with God. Where we say, I I got it. No, I got it. I can take care of it, God. When you recognize that's not the way you're meant to live. With God here before you saying, I'm here to carry your cares. Psalm 55 verse 26. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. We're not supposed to walk around this life saying, I got this, God. Humility says, I I don't got this. Cares are to be cast, not carried pridefully. And another thing that becomes so obvious when you're in the pressure cooker and God's trying to get you to embrace humility is not just say, cast your cares, don't carry them. I think it's also saying, casting, not blaming. Isn't it easy to look at life in the pressure cooker and just start blaming? You're the reason this is hard. This is the reason this is hard. If you hadn't done this, then this wouldn't have been so hard. He's saying, no, no, no. Christians, we're not on different teams. We're on the same team together, maintaining humility by casting, not by carrying. Why? Because he cares for you. In other words, as you walk through this life and you're tempted to say, I got this, God. Here's my guess. My guess is that there is no one here that would be foolish enough to take all of your life and say, I got this, God. Some things are more easily cast than others. But I bet There are many of you here, like me, where there are certain things in your life that you kind of identify and isolate and say, 
I do have this. And Peter is making no exception. We cast all of our cares on him because here he is saying, I care for you. Humility says I'm ready to receive grace and I need it here and I need it here and I need it here and I need it here. And pride says, don't need it here, God. Don't need it here. Remember, this is what Jesus taught. He said, why are you so anxious about food or about clothing? You're surrounded by your Father's care everywhere. Look at the birds of the air. What do they do? They don't sow seeds like farmers. They just eat seeds. That's what they do. But God feeds them. What do flowers do? They don't crochet or make their own clothing. God clothes them. And he says they're, they're here today and gone to them tomorrow. If he so cares for them, won't he take care of you? He cares for more. Could it be that anxiety is actually a form of arrogance sometimes? says, I got to take care of this. I got to fend for myself. I got to figure this out. When all the while, God says, will you rest in my superior care? You think you can do better caring for yourself than me? You don't care about yourself more than I care for you. That is an incredible thought. Rest in my superior care for you, my superior love for you, my superior wisdom for you. Where is it that you have an anxiety right now that you're refusing to cast, trying to do it on your own, acting like a functional orphan when you're not? Cast these cares. Don't carry them. I think sometimes we fall prey to some really stupid Christian cliches. I'm just going to call out a really stupid one. One that I hear a lot. God will never give you more than you can handle. It, it's like partially true, partially false, because 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, I know where it's coming from, says God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So it, it sounds like, oh, he's not going to give you more than you can handle. What, what it means is he's not going to put you in a position where you can only sin. That's your only option. No, he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. Yes, it's true. God will never put you in a position where your only option is to sin. But it doesn't mean that he will not put you in a position beyond what you can bear so that you won't sin by trusting yourself. 
He is committed to you trusting Him, not yourself. That's exactly what Paul said in the next letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he said, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that came upon us in Asia. We were utterly burdened beyond our ability. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Paul says, baloney. He did. Why? He did this so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God. Could it be that one of God's aims in COVID-19 is to humble you? Is to show you you can't make it on your own. to show you you can't trust in yourself. I'm just going to shut everything down with a virus to show you control is an illusion. I'm going to send all of my children to their room for a while so they'll understand they can't trust in themselves. That's loving. Second command. It says, be watchful. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is the second time that he's told us to be sober-minded. The first time, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning, in the midst of trials like we're in, don't become so fixated on the trials that your mind becomes drunk with them. What a vivid picture. That in times of trials, one sign that we're trying to take it on ourselves is that we become drunk with that. Analysis, trying to figure it out trying to think through, how do I handle this? And you become absolutely fixated and filled with it so it's all you think about. He says, no, no, no. Be sober-minded. Be ready to think. Sober reflection. Why? Be watchful. So sober reflection, sober readiness for what? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When Peter wants to pull back the curtain, lift the veil, and let everybody see who's behind all the suffering that's happening, he says, it's, it's not Caesar, and it's not your adversaries out there that you think are persecuting you, if you want to point the finger of blame somewhere, here he is, your adversary. He's been busy. He's at work. All kinds of suffering for the brotherhood. That's what he's doing. Peter just pulls back the veil and says, look at Satan at work. Your adversary is not your brother or sister. It's not the unbeliever that's harsh towards you. It is the devil. 
prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That word devour is such a gruesome word. It's the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for what the fish does to Jonah. Just gulp and you're gone. And the question is, wait, can he do that to Christians? Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Can he do that to believers? I thought you were safe and secure from all alarm. How could he ever devour us? Well, I saw something on Twitter. I go to Twitter for the animals, not for anything else. I saw something on Twitter that had a killer whale, like at SeaWorld, and it had just been given like fish, so he'd eaten the fish and then had a little bit of fish left over, and he went to the edge of the pool and he spit it out for bait for the birds. And all these seagulls are coming by and looking at it, and he's like, I mean, he's got his mouth open, like ready, and you can see the birds kind of going and like, can I get it? Can I just grab it and go? And they're all looking at each other. And, and finally, one just, he's, he's on the, the ground, running around. And then he, he steps into the water to get it and fly. And then the killer whale grabs him, devours him. The first thing I thought is, that is so smart. The second thing I thought is, that is so the devil. He cannot devour Christians in Christ. You are safe and secure on the solid ground of Christ, and Satan knows it. He knows the only way to get you to be devoured is to get you, tempt you away from Jesus, away from solid ground. He is such an evil genius. What does he do with Adam and Eve? Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians It says that Satan tempted Adam and Eve toward the only thing in the garden that could kill them. To eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did God really say? Tempts them toward the only thing that can kill them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he's now trying, just like he deceived Eve, He's trying to tempt you away from a purity and simplicity of devotion to Jesus Christ. You see what he does now? Then he tried to tempt them toward the only thing that can kill them. Now he tries to tempt you away from the only one who can save you, the only one that gives you life. He's constantly trying to tempt you away from Jesus. He does it sometimes with false doctrine, with trying to get you to believe false gospels, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, that's what Satan was doing there. But sometimes he does it with persecution. That's this text. Read it, verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, so notice Satan's behind it, The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's saying, how do you resist him? You resist him by being firm in your faith, that is, in Jesus. Don't let him tempt you away from the only one who can save you. 
or he will devour you. Be firm in your faith, and you're firm in your faith because you know his tactic. The game's up. The cat's out of the bag. You know what he's doing when he's trying to have all of this suffering for the brotherhood throughout the world. That helped me so much because it answered a mystery I had in verse 8. Why is this lion roaring? Have you ever asked that? I mean, if you, if you just picture in your mind your adversary, the devil, prowling around like, like a lion, so you think of a lion prowling like on the prowl for the prey. He's crouching, ears down in the tall grass, ready to pounce. They never roar. Why is this lion roaring? If he roars, the game's up and the gazelle's gone. Why is he roaring? Lions roar to intimidate and scare away. And Satan is using suffering, using persecution to say, stay away from Jesus. Stay away from Jesus. It will cost you your life. It will cost you so much. Stay away from Jesus or else. And Peter's saying, oh, resist him. Don't let suffering lead you away from Jesus. Don't let Satan lie to you and say, it'll cost you so much. It'll cost you your life. Say, this is the only life that's really life. You're not going to tempt me away from the one who is eternal life. I'm not going to believe that lie. Remember, that's Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Jesus did. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. So if he's going to save the children, what's he going to do? Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh. He can bleed now and die so that through death he might destroy the one, that is the devil, who has the power of death. That he says it, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here God is using suffering to humble you, show you your neediness. Peter says, embrace that purpose. He's refining you. He's purifying your faith so that it rests only in Jesus. Receive that. Embrace that. And resist what the devil is trying to do in scaring you away from Jesus by saying, it's going to cost you so much, even your life. The Christian knows, no, no. Jesus already gave his life so that you're a toothless tiger. So that he broke the fangs of the serpent. Let, let's just be really frank for a moment. 
I heard Pastor John say this one time. It helped me so much. Because we say, we're not afraid of death. And I think, I feel a little afraid of death. And he made the distinction for me. He said, but we're afraid of dying, but not death. Like, there it is. I'm not really excited about gruesome ways to die. That's a little bit fearful. But not death itself. Has been so defeated, so crushed under his feet. So here is my conclusion. The gospel is the only way to be humble and to resist the devil. Think about this. Just close here. Martin Lloyd-Jones once had somebody ask him how to be humble. So helped by this. How can you be humble? Lloyd-Jones said, There's, this friend had pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. And he seemed to think I had some patent remedy. Do this, do that, and the other, and you'll be humble. He said, I, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you, for example, to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you'll soon become proud of that. There's only one way to be humble. And that is to look right into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. It's the only way. Humility is not something you create within yourself. Rather, when you look at him and you realize who he is and what he's done for you, you are humbled. C.S. Lewis said it right. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And therefore, as Lloyd-Jones is saying, so you can think of Christ more. If you look at what Jesus did with all authority, God's not an abuser. Abusers want to use control to create dependence on them. That's not God abusers want to put all the vulnerability on someone else and have no vulnerability themselves. All authority, no vulnerability. Jesus is not that. Jesus took on all of our vulnerability despite having all authority. He takes on our flesh and blood. Why? So that he can die for us. So that he can forgive us of all of our sins. So that we can have eternal life forever for the joy set before him. He endures the cross, taking on all the shame, all the humiliation. The one who is greater than all puts on the servant's towel. And if Jesus has been humble, how can we be proud anymore? And what is pride? Pride was the original snare of the devil. It helps me sometimes. When I confess pride, I don't just say, sorry I was prideful. Sorry I was acting like the devil. Why is Jesus the only way, the gospel the only way to resist Satan? Here's what you understand. Satan right now is putting a full court press on the church, but not because he thinks he can win, but because he knows his time is short. 
He's going to lose. He's checked the score. We get, a, we get a sneak peek of the conversation already with Jesus and the demons. And they come to him and they say, what are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us before the time? They know their time's coming. They don't want you to know their time's coming. So that in Revelation 20, when you see the way it's all going to end, Satan and the beast and the false prophet put into the lake of fire, tormented forever and ever, Satan doesn't want you to see that. Jesus has overcome. He said in this life you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. I've defeated the devil. I've defeated this fallen world. I've taken everything that it can possibly throw at you. I've put it under my feet. I'm reigning on high. I'm coming back for you. Don't let Satan lead you away from me. We are humbled when we see how much our Savior loves us, how much He cares for us, how quickly then should we cast all the anxieties that are building up in COVID, cast them now. Let's pray. Father, I ask We're so sorry for our pride. Father, we're so sorry for how easy it is for teammates, brothers and sisters to become opponents. We're sorry for how easy it is for us to say, I got this. You can have that, you can have that, I got this. God, I pray that you would do a deep searching work so that we hate pride as much as you do and that we would not put ourselves in opposition to you, but we would be ready now to receive grace as we cast our cares. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.